It is good to be here this morning. It is good to see all of you. Um, as one of the pastors of Del Cerro Baptist Church, just um, right across the freeway, uh, we often are thinking about you all. We are praying for you. Um, we also highlight different churches um, during our service to pray for, and your church is often one that we are praying for because we are both part of the Pillar Network. Uh, so we are praying for you often um, and thinking about you, and uh, so it's encouraging to be here and to be able to worship with you and get to know you a little bit better. Um, since I work at church, I don't often have an opportunity to, to visit other churches and be encouraged by other worship services, but this morning is that opportunity. So it's good to be here. I'm looking forward to this time together. Uh, I do want to say I have been so encouraged by your pastor, Pastor Jimmy. Uh, we, as a Pillar Network, gather together um, every few months just to have lunch and to encourage one another. And one thing that has really struck me about um, your pastor is his wisdom. And I'm sure many of you know this, you're aware of this, that Jimmy is a man of wisdom. And uh, I, I'm blessed by that. And even this last week, something came up in our church, uh, a, a difficult situation that is a little bit hard to navigate. And my first thought was, let's call Jimmy. Um, Jimmy will probably know what to do, even if he hasn't dealt with it personally himself. Uh, he has a lot of wisdom. And so I was, that was my immediate thought. Let's, let's talk with Jimmy and find out what, what he would do in this situation. So it's good to be here. Our passage this morning um, is from the book of 1 John. 1 John Chapter 2, um, starting at the end of chapter 2, 28, and then we'll be going into uh, chapter 3, the first three verses of that. If you want to turn there with me, it's all the way at the end of your Bible. 1 John, chapter 2, starting in verse 28, and going until 3, 3. Let me read this for us. This is the word of the Lord. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time. I ask, Lord, that your word would be clear, that you would... Build us up by your word, Lord. Expose any area that we are wrongly thinking about you, about the gospel. Help us to, to bring our lives into alignment with you, Lord, to worship you more fully this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin this morning, I want to start by giving us a little bit of context to the letter of 1 John. I know as a church, you guys have been working through the book of Acts, and this is, this is not, we're jumping into another letter. Um, I have been preaching slowly through the book of 1 John at Del Cerro, and during that time I've been able to learn about the context and kind of the situation that caused this letter to be written. So 1 John is a letter written by the Apostle John, 
who was one of Jesus' closest friends and one of the 12 disciples. Um, This is the same John that wrote the Gospel of John, um, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then also the book of Revelation. Uh, So as you are reading those books, you'll see similar themes pop up. Um, We'll even see that today. Uh, And John is writing this letter of 1st John to a church or a group of churches that's hurting From the letter itself, we can tell that these churches have recently gone through something like um, a church split. Uh, False teachers had crept inside the church, and they were causing a lot of problems. Um, They were spreading false teaching about who Jesus was um, and what it meant to follow him. Um, And these, these false teachers most likely claimed to be super apostles, um, high status, high authority, Um, They claimed to have this special connection with God, and yet at the same time, they weren't living in line with God's word. So they were were boasting that they had this spiritual connection. Um, There's even hints, maybe from the first chapter, that these these, um, false teachers claimed that they did not sin anymore. They were without sin. Um, And yet, they were clearly living lives of immorality. And, And oftentimes, this is what we see with false teachers. Um, they, they talk a big talk, and yet their life is not consistent with God's word. Um, over time, these false teachers left the church, and that's what we see in chapter 2, that they, they went out from us because they were not ever truly one of us. Um, so chapter 2 shows us that, and you can imagine this church now having these false teachers spread these um, wrong understanding about Jesus and then leaving. The church would be shaken, um, these, these men were claiming to, to have secret knowledge, perhaps, and secret truth about what it means to be a Christian, and they, they leave, and the church is left wondering, are, is what they're holding to the truth? Uh, so John writes this letter to help straighten things out. He writes this letter because he loves the believers here, um, and he wants to help them know the difference between true, lasting faith and a counterfeit faith. John loves these believers, and he wants them to have confidence uh, that what they truly believed from the beginning, the gospel that they were holding to, is a gospel that saves. And John tells us this. uh, He kind of gives us the purpose statement of his letter in 1 John 5.3. John says this towards the, the very end of his letter. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that, that you have eternal life. So John is writing so that these believers could have assurance. They could know that what they are believing is true. So with that as our kind of big picture context for the letter, let's now walk through each section, and we're going to see how John is teaching and equipping the believers to know what is true um, and how to have assurance in his faith, in their faith. Uh, and we'll, we'll break the passage up into three sections. In the first section, um, we're going to see how John talks about how abiding in Christ leads to confidence. Abiding in Christ leads to confidence. In the second section, we'll, we'll see how John reminds the believers of God's incredible love for them. And then in the final section, John helps believers look forward to, to lift their eyes to see what will happen when Christ returns. Um, so those are our, our three sections. Let's begin um, with the first one 
starting in verse 28 and 29. Let me read those verses again. John writes, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So John begins this section by saying, And now, little children. So John is showing, he's signaling that this is a beginning of a new section. Um, John has recently kind of wrapped up the previous section, focusing on the false teachers, the, the false doctrine that they were teaching, and now he's transitioning into this new section um, where he begins by commanding them to abide. Um, he commands them to abide. And this is actually the only real command that we're going to see this morning. The command to abide is, is the only real command that we see. And this is not a new command. Uh, this is not the first time John is saying abide, and it's actually how he ended the previous section. So if you look just one verse back, the way he concludes that previous section is to say, abide in Christ. And then he begins this next section. He says, little children, abide. And it's almost as if John is saying, I know I just said this. Let me repeat myself. This is important. Let me remind you again, abide in Christ. And as I was thinking about preaching this morning, coming to this church, I thought this was a fitting passage. Um, Not knowing what many of you are going through, not even knowing many of you, I know that Christ calls us to abide. That the, the Christian life is a life of abiding. Um, and it's, we need to hear that over and over again. Stay true. Remain in him. So our command this morning is to abide. But, but what does that mean? Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you've read that before. But, but what does that look like? What does it mean to abide? How can you know if you're currently abiding? How can you examine yourself and see how you're doing? Uh, and, and thankfully... We don't need to to guess. Um, In order to explain what this means, um, I don't need to come up with an analogy to explain what this means. I don't need to try to be clever here. Jesus himself provides the perfect analogy. So if you would look with me in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, 1 through 5. And again, this is the same author here. We see this, this similar theme of abiding. John is going to show us Jesus' own words about what it means to abide. So you can flip there and then keep a finger in First John, because we'll be flipping back and forth from this section. John 15, 1 through 5. Jesus tells his disciples in the upper room, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So in this passage, Jesus makes it clear. 
He is the vine, and we are the branches. So abiding in him means staying connected to him. Just as apart from the vine, a branch can do nothing, it wilts and dies, the same is for us. If we don't remain in Christ, we will not do anything of lasting worth. So abiding literally means remaining in. We need to remain in Christ just like the branch needs to remain connected to the vine. And this is what we're called to as Christians. A long obedience in the same direction. We are called to abide, to not leave, to not look to something else to get our source of life, to, to satisfy us. We're to remain in Christ. And in the context of the letter, it's really clear to see what the opposite of abiding looks like. Well, what is the opposite of abiding? It's, it's exactly what these false teachers did. These false teachers came into the church. They claimed to be, have this close connection with Jesus, and ultimately they left. They didn't abide. They didn't remain true to Christ, but they broke off. And so John is saying, don't be like this. Don't be like these false teachers that left. And I'm sure they were tempted. There, was, there were those questioning, should I, should I leave? Should I follow them? Should I stay? And John is saying, remain in Christ. Abide in him and you will bear good fruit. So at the most basic level, John's call to abide in Christ simply remains means remaining in him, living a faithful Christian life and allowing God to flow through us to produce good fruit. Practically, there are a couple different ways that the Bible teaches us that we are to abide. So practically, what does this look like? How can we do this? And the first is to treasure God's word. So flip back to 1 John and look in chapter 2, um, just, the pre, just earlier on in the chapter. 1 John chapter 2, 24, John writes this, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So John's talking about, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Well, what does he mean by that? What, what did this church hear from the beginning? John is talking about the gospel. He's talking about God's word. Believers came to this church, they shared God's word with them, and they believed this is how churches are started. When you hear God's word and respond in faith, and now he's saying, stick to that, that early message that you heard. Don't leave that early message. Remain, let that... Let the word remain in you. And this, this looks like treasuring God's word. Not, not going off, seeking other sources of information, but holding true to what God has given us. Don't depart from it. Don't change it. Don't go beyond it. And again, the false teachers give us an example of what it means to not allow the word of God to abide in you. These false teachers didn't allow what was taught them in the beginning to abide, but they twisted it. They didn't treasure God's word, but instead they used it for their own gain. They used God's word for self-interest rather than submitting to God's word as their highest authority. But if we want to abide in Christ, our job is to treasure God's word. So for us, that means knowing our Bibles, allowing God's word to be our highest authority. As Christians, we are people of the book. We need to know the Bible and let it guide us. 
If we believe that God's word is true, then we need to know it. We need to know how to apply it and study it, meditate on it. There is a great attack these days on the word of God. People are changing it, twisting it, saying we, we've, we've understood something that for 2,000 years we've never understood. Now we finally understood God's word. And this is false. People are, are using it for their own means, and yet to abide in Christ means to treasure God's word. So that's the first way that we practically do it. And the second way John shows us to abide is to live in obedience to God's word. And you can see how these are connected. First, we know God's word, we treasure it. And then second, we live in obedience to that word. Turn back to the Gospel of John, verse 10. John 15:10. Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus makes it clear. If we want to abide in him, we are to keep his commandments. We need to live lives of obedience to his word and and submit to him in all things. According to Jesus, this is practically how we live out the Christian life. Knowing God through his word and living in obedience to that word allows us to abide. So, Now that we've seen what it means to abide in Jesus, let's continue to go on and see how this provides an amazing promise for us. Um, Look back at our passage in 1 John. We see, abide in him, and here's the result, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Remember, this letter is about assurance about helping these believers understand that they're holding to what is true. And so when we see this, John is showing the believers that confidence, assurance in Christ when he returns comes from abiding. True assurance for a Christian comes from simply abiding in Christ. This is so encouraging. There's not, there's not some mystical knowledge that we need to know. There's not something... Uh, some special spell. You don't have to be a super Christian. You simply have to remain in Christ. Continue to pursue him. Walk faithfully. Treasure God's word and live in obedience to that word. And when Christ returns, you will have confidence. Again, we see that this is something that the false teachers couldn't have. The false teachers couldn't have the same sort of assurance because they didn't abide. When Christ returns... They, won't, they will shrink back in fear. They will shrink back in shame knowing that they didn't stay faithful, they didn't abide. As the, as the branches in the vine, they were not connected anymore. So our call is to abide in Christ, and as we do, we will grow in assurance. But I want to clarify. I want to be clear that you're not tempted to hear what I'm not saying. If if abiding in Christ, treasuring God's word and living in obedience leads to greater assurance, am I saying then that we are somehow saved or loved more by God by doing this? Are we saved by our good works? And the answer, of course, is no. I loved all the songs we sang this morning, preaching the gospel through song, right? His merit and not ours. And this is true. And we see that John shows us this exact thing. Um, Look at the next verse, verse 29. John writes, 
If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices, practices righteousness has been born of him. So John is showing in this verse that those who practice righteousness do so not to earn God's love and to become righteous, but because they are already children of God. They have already been born by him. Another way of saying this is that God's children practice righteousness because God is righteous. And so his children are going to resemble him. Christians who have been born again start to look like their dad. We all, in some way, resemble our parents. And true Christians are the same. Christians that live righteously don't do so in order to earn God's love, but because we've been made new. The Holy Spirit has, has changed us from the inside out, and we start to reflect the image of God. So as we abide in Christ, we do so not in order to become children, but because God has already brought that salvation to us. He's already brought us into his family. So the only reason that we can abide, the only reason that we can pursue God and love God from the heart is because God has made that possible. Before we loved God, God first loved us and sent his son to reconcile us back to God. God is the one that first loved. He brought us into a place where we can now abide. So we have been born of God. And this is our motivation. Our motivation to abide, our motivation to read God's word, to live in obedience to that, doesn't come from fear. We don't abide in order to earn something, but we abide because we know that God has accomplished everything that was needed to bring about our salvation. So our abiding is a response to God's love. We grow as children and we practice righteousness because God has made it possible. Again, we love because he first loved us. So that's wrapping up first, the first section. Let's, let's continue to move on. Um, we've seen what it means to abide in Christ, and, and now we're going to move on to the next section. Um, and in this section, we're going to see the incredible love that God has poured out on all, all of us. Um, and this, again, this is our motivation to, to live in Christ. Um, look with me, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So John starts this new section by saying, saying, See what kind of love the Father has given us. Literally translated, John is saying something like, From what country does this love come from? John is overwhelmed by this love. He's saying he doesn't even know where it's come from. This, this love is otherworldly, totally like anything he is familiar with. And this is interesting because John at this point is an old man. I'm sure he would have seen great acts of love and service during his lifetime. And yet, John is saying this love is totally different. It's completely different than what we know. So what is John talking about? What is he what is it about this love that is so incredible, that it, it, it's from another place? And John tells us, look with me, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So John here, he's talking about the doctrine of adoption. 
the incredible reality that God not only forgives sinners, but that he adopts them. You see, for God to simply forgive would be the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. And yet God doesn't stop there. God goes beyond this. John is reminding the church that God's love takes rebellious sinners, the very ones that are responsible for putting him on the cross, and he makes those sinners his adopted sons and daughters. That's beautiful. That love is otherworldly. Listen to how Paul talks about this exact idea in the book of Galatians. Galatians 4, 4 through 7, Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You and I were once those same sinners that were responsible for putting Jesus on the cross. But by God's grace, we have been changed. We have gone from enemies to sons and daughters. That is the love that John is talking about here. For Christians, this love that God has shown us is the source of our motivation. Just like we talked about earlier, God's love is what compels us to obedience. As we understand God's love, as we understand what it means to be adopted, we overflow with good works. We joyfully follow God's good commands, not out of duty, but out of a, a response of love. Everything that the Father has done, the way he has loved us, brought us into his family, well, then we know that his laws are good. We know the path that he has for us is good, and we can trust him. When we understand and meditate on God's love, this is how our hearts grow more and more sanctified. Right? We don't, we don't force ourselves to love God. We don't try to discipline ourselves to love God more. We look to Christ. We see what Christ has accomplished. We see his love for us and our hearts are changed. When we understand the gospel and we, we soak in the gospel, love for God overflows and that results in obedience. This is a beautiful reality. We, as we continue to go, um, we see John write this. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So John has just finished telling the churches that they are God's children, and then he reminds them that the world is not going to recognize you. John is telling the believers, listen, the world didn't recognize Jesus. Don't expect them to recognize you either. And, and what does John mean by this? People knew Jesus. They knew a lot of details about him. They knew where he was born, who his, his parents were. And yet, the world never knew Jesus because they never recognized him as who he was. They never recognized that he was the beloved of the Father, the only Son of God. And so they couldn't understand why he did what he did. It didn't make sense to them. And in the same way, we are children of God. And so we shouldn't expect the world to know us. We can spend time with people of the world. We can love them and be good friends. And yet, to a certain extent, we need to understand that our lives will be different. The way we, the way we live is not, is not, it's different than them. 
And this is okay. Just like they didn't recognize why Jesus did what, they, what he did, they, they're not going to recognize us. They're going to question, why do you live in submission to God's word? Why do you treasure God's word? Why are you obedient to his word? And so we should understand that they're not going to recognize us. The world prioritizes different things than we do. And as we treasure God's word, we're going we're gonna to live radically different than the world. And this is okay. If we are living lives that the world understood, if, if the world looks at us and says, oh, oh, that makes sense. You're living for the same reasons that I'm living. Are we really abiding? Are we really walking according to God's way if everything that we do, the world understands? And so this is a good reminder that John is saying, listen, you are children of God. And yet the world's not going to recognize you. Um, and I want to I want to talk really directly to the young people here this this morning. We are you are going to want the world to recognize you. You are going to want to conform to the world so that people will like you. You are going to want the world to accept you. Don't fall for this trap. Don't compromise your faith and your convictions simply to be loved by the world. This is a pressure that everyone feels, but I think young people especially feel it more intensely. This desire for to be to be liked, to be part of a system. And John is reminding you that you your identity is in Christ. You don't need to conform to the world. They will not understand you. You can live to please your heavenly Father. He has adopted you. He loves you. And he knows you. As we keep working through our passage, we're going to see that John teaches on what will happen to believers when Christ returns. So Jesus has already talked about how believers can have confidence at Christ's second coming. And now he's going to talk about what it will be like. How we are changed at Christ's return. So look again to our passage, chapter 3, verse 2 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has yet appe- not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So in this section, John is doing two things. First, he is pointing believers' eyes to a present reality, and then he is calling them to lift their, go- their gaze to a future reality. So in the first part, John is reminding the church that they are God's children now. That's their identity. Their identity is children of God. In other words, believers are not waiting to become children of God. We're not waiting to be accepted. If you are in Christ, you are, you are a child of God now. So John is reminding the church of that, and he's reminding us of that. We are already sons and daughters today. That is our identity. And we can, we can walk in that. We can know that God is working all things for his glory, for our good. We can understand that he is our loving heavenly father. We are his children today. As we go through the trials, as we work through the anxieties of life, we can understand that God is with us. God is for us. Think about how that changes your view of what you go through. 
If, if you have this view that you're waiting to be a child of God, then there's anxiety and frustration and, and fear. But if you understand that you are God's child today, then he's working all things for his glory and your good. Anything that he allows you to go through, he will be with you. I think that changes the way we see our trials. That changes the way we approach life. We are not waiting for that future reality, but we are God's children today. This is our identity. And again, the world is going to try to tell you to attach yourself to some other identity, to pick some other identity that the world wants for you and to, to take that on. But we can reject that. We can say, no, my true identity is a child of the king. I don't need to be fit into your little boxes. They're not going to understand us. We can hold on to that. We are children of the king. So that is the present reality. And yet, as we, as we look forward, there's a greater fulfillment to come. John writes, What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So John is describing this future reality for all believers. When Christ returns and we see him for the first time, all believers will be changed to be like him. Now, this is not talking about being like him in his, in his glory, in his perfection, in his wisdom, but to be changed like him in a physical form. We will have resurrected bodies. So when Christ returns, when we see him for the first time, our old sin-filled bodies will be changed to a sinless body. In a moment, we will go from perishable to imperishable. Just like Jesus' resurrection body was different than the body that he lived in and was, was, killed, was killed on the cross, our resurrection body is going to be different. So we don't know what this will look like. We don't have all the details. And yet, the Bible actually does talk about this quite a lot. This is something that we can look forward to. This is the hope that we are looking forward to. Philippians 3, 20 through 21 says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, listen to this, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's a beautiful reality our lowly bodies are going to be transformed into a glorious body. That is what we can look forward to. That is the hope that we are holding on to. Everyone that is dealing with health issues, back pain, knee pain, can say amen to that. Looking forward to that future body when all that pain will be gone. This is a beautiful reality. Those, those aches, those pains in this body are a reminder that this is not our final resting place. This is not our final home. We're looking forward to the next life. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Paul writes this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. 
And this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? As Christians, we look forward to getting rid of this body, this body that is full of sin and is decaying, and we look forward to putting on that new body, that resurrection body that will never decay, never wear out. It's not infected with the same sin. This will happen, John tells us, as a result of seeing Jesus. There's something mysterious about seeing him as he is that will cause us to be changed. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then shall I fully know, even as I have been fully known. So when we see Jesus face to face, we will be changed to be like him. This is our hope. This is what we are looking forward to, to seeing Christ face to face, not shrinking back in fear, but boldly approaching him, knowing that we have been abiding with him and we will abide with him forever. If we hold on to these promises, if we are holding on to this truth, looking forward to Christ's return, we will be changed. Hoping in Christ does not just stay something that we believe. It's not just, it won't just stay as head knowledge, but what we believe always lives its, itself out in our lives. And this is exactly how John ends this passage. Look with me at the very end of our, our passage in verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Look at that verse. Notice that John doesn't write this as a command. He's not commanding us to purify ourselves. John totally could. He could say, purify yourselves. But instead, he's simply communing, communicating this reality that takes place when a believer hopes in Christ. John shows that every true believer who is hoping in Christ will purify themselves as he is pure. It's almost as if they can't help themselves. When a believer sets their sights and they focus on Christ and his glory, they will be transformed. They will grow in holiness. They will be sanctified. This is how our sanctification works itself out. We mature in Christ not when we try harder, but when we look to Christ. I promise you that if, if you look to yourself, if you look inward, you will just get more and more discouraged. We don't grow in holiness and purity by looking within, but we look to Christ. When we look to him, when we hope in him, naturally God works in our heart the work of sanctification to grow in us good fruit. Just as that vine is connected to the branches and gives it all the nutrients and resource it needs, when we are connected to Christ, when we are hoping in him, we will be changed. This is a supernatural process that God does in our hearts as we look to Christ. The more and more we look to him, the more and more our hearts are changed. And I want to close with this last passage, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Listen to this beautiful passage about how God transforms us, how he changes us from the inside out. 2 Corinthians 
3.18. This is what it says. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What the Apostle Paul is saying there is that as we fix our eyes on Christ, as we look to Him, as we behold His glory, we are being transformed. We are being changed from one degree of glory to another. Not by trying harder, but by looking to Christ. So this is why, as a church, both here and at Del Cerro, we gather every single week, not to look at ourselves harder, but to look to Christ, to see His glory, to let His glory be put on display as we read His Word and get to know Him better. And as we do, He transforms us from one degree of glory to another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing truths in your word. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to be super apostles. You have called us to a task that by your grace we can accomplish, Lord, because of what you've done in our hearts, because you have worked in us and you have adopted us. We can abide, Lord. We can treasure your word. We can live in obedience to that word, Lord, and we can grow in confidence that when you return, we will not shrink back in shame. Father, so I pray for anyone here that is, that is struggling in that. Will you help them to look to Christ, Lord, to take their eyes off themselves and put their eyes on you, to see that you are able and willing to save, Lord, that you have accomplished everything that is needed to be done so that we can worship you and allow you to do the work of sanctification in our hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.